All right. Certainly is always a joy to gather together. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this evening. I invite you to turn there. Titus chapter 2, going to be verses 11 to 14. Whenever I get the chance to preach and decide my own text, it's always exciting. You know, get to go to one of those places that you especially enjoy. If you're not familiar with this passage, Titus 2, verse 11 to 14, I'd encourage you to get familiar with it. It would be a passage that would be near and dear to your heart. If you struggle with memorizing scripture like me, start here. This is the gospel in a concise package, okay? Uh, how we can live the Christian life. So I'd definitely recommend this is one of those passages to start with. I'm increasingly convinced, looking at my own life, but also uh, the lives of the church as a whole, that our issues with sin and sanctification, or simply put, living the Christian life, they go back to us simply not understanding and applying the gospel. Okay? There's typically not some grand problem with our thinking or anything like that. Rather, it's just an inability to go back to basic fundamentals and actually implement them and live them out. Paul is incredibly helpful here and concise in helping us see how the work of Christ on our behalf not only redeems us from sin, brings us to God, but also is presently training us for godliness. That is what is going on here in Titus 2. Let me read verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Look back with me at verse 11 the beginning there. What does he say? For the grace of God has appeared. You notice that for. That word forces us to go back. For what? Why is this for here? Before we can even, you know, consider what Paul means by the grace of God, we need to consider why he's talking about the grace of God in the first place. Quick recap on Titus. Paul is writing this letter to young pastor Titus, okay? He's saying, in a nutshell, here's Christian ministry 101, gospel basics, right? Here's how you do church, how you raise up church elders. You rebuke false teachers. Then you notice in chapter 2, he hones in on what Titus is to say to those in the church, right? He starts with older men. You guys need to do this. Then he moves to older women, young women, young men. So everyone, okay? He's moved from the top down, from Titus to each and every person in the church, pastors, deacons, old people, young people, everyone, here's what you're supposed to do. This is what godliness looks like. Now, if we've been working through Titus together, not just jumping in like we are tonight, you would have noticed that Paul has told Titus what these Christians are supposed to do. Here's what your life is supposed to look like, but he hasn't really told them how to do it. He said, hey, here's what you need to do. Your lives need to look like this, but he hasn't said, here's the power and here's how you actually do that. He said, elders, you need to have these godly character traits. Older men, they're to be what? Sober-minded, 
Older women, reverent in behavior. Younger women are to be pure and kind. Younger men are to be self-controlled. So one could rightly respond at this point, okay, I understand. I need to do that. And that's often the case with all of us, right? We know what God's word has clearly said. I know what I'm supposed to do. The problem is, how do I do that? And Paul gives us the answer here in verse 11. How do we live the Christian life that God has called us to live? Here's the reason behind all these commands. Here's the source. Here's the power and the strength to do everything that God has commanded each and every one to do. And what does it say? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is essentially the launching pad, main point, and summary of all four of these verses. It's also like the launching pad, main point, and summary of the whole book of Titus. Grace is a key theme all throughout. He's saying you have to do all this, and how you carry it out is actually by the grace of God. And I think we even intuit at a glance what the grace of God is in this verse. So when things we're so used to it, we actually have to step back. Think about this. It's not a thing that has appeared. The grace of God that has appeared is a person. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. He is the one who has appeared in space, time, physical history. He is the one who brought salvation to all people. For the grace of God has appeared is Paul's shorthand way of saying the gospel. God's saving work in Christ. He has appeared and brought salvation. Now, we need to clarify here. This does not mean that all people will be saved. We know that, right? It does not say that he saved all people. On the contrary, it says that he brought salvation to all people. Jesus is the way and the only way of salvation. He is our only refuge from the curse and penalty of sin. He is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved in every time and every place. He is the only way. He's the exclusive Savior of everyone who turns to him. That is what Paul is saying here when he says bringing salvation for all people. But what do we mean by grace? It's a word we throw around a lot. What do we mean and what does the Bible mean by grace? Well, the Bible teaches us that the grace of God is not simply God's unmerited, kind disposition towards us, okay? It is that. It is something that is not merited, but it's not just his kindness. No, God's grace is his power. It actually brings something about. It's not that God is sitting there wishing he could be kind and wanting to do these things. He is, but then he also carries that out. You tracking with me? His power works in grace. God's grace saved us, past tense, for believers. It transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. His grace is effective. It's redeemed us. It has cleansed us. It has justified us, declared us righteous in Christ. All these things truly happened, past tense, in the work of Christ. And not only is it a power that wrought salvation in the past, that's true. We hold those gospel promises near and dear to our hearts. They're vitally important. But it's also a power that we as Christians are presently under. Not only past tense, but present tense. Having been set free from the bondage and enslaving power of sin, we are now under, as believers, the power of God's grace. We can now deny the sinful flesh by the power of the Spirit, and we can live righteous lives fully pleasing to Him. Those are essentially the two main, two main points in this passage that Paul is talking about. 
God's grace in the past and God's grace in the present. What he has done in the past and what he is presently doing now. If you're taking notes, point one would be this. God gave himself for us. That's verse 14. And secondly, God is training us. That's verses 12 and 13. God gave himself for us. And number two, God is presently training us. Now, I actually want to consider verse 14 first. The, that's referring to the past tense work of Christ on our behalf. That's the basis for which then God works in us presently for godliness. So point one here, God gave himself for us. Look at verse 14 again. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You'll notice in verse 14 that that who refers back, okay? That points us back to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get too nerdy on you. I could have, but I'm not going to. Uh, grammatically, this is one of the clearest verses in the New Testament that attests to the full and true divinity of Christ. One of the clearest passages in the New Testament. That construction in Greek, our great God and Savior, makes it very clear that it's referring to one person, not two. One person who is our great God and Savior. It's not as if Paul is saying, our great God, that's one person, and then our Savior is another person. No, he's saying Jesus Christ himself, this singular person, is our great God, and he's also our Savior. He's the one who, what does he say, who gave himself for us. Christ willingly laid down his life. The innocent stood in the place of the guilty, that the guilty might be declared innocent. It's a remarkably clear statement on Christ's death as substitutionary. He took our place as our representative, our substitute. Throughout church history, there's been various theories of the atonement. If you guys have never heard of these, you're very fortunate, okay? Um, there's various theories of the atonement. What exactly did Christ accomplish on the cross? And some people have advocated for, well, what they call a moral example theory, which is, you know, it's like you and I are talking, you know, on a dock at a lake, and there's nothing wrong with us, and we're just talking, and Jesus runs off the dock, doesn't know how to swim, and he jumps in and says, I love you, and then drowns and dies. And we take from that, we should also do that. That's basically the moral example theory. If you're like, that sounds ridiculous. It exa exactly, that is. His death actually didn't accomplish anything. It's just we should learn from his good example. Or maybe you've heard of the ransom theory. This is where our souls are owned by the devil, and Christ died to win our souls back from the devil. He had to pay that price. Hope you're going, that doesn't sound like the Bible, because it doesn't. The Bible teaches us very clearly that Christ's death was substitutionary. Christ was our sinless substitute who died in our place to satisfy the Father's justice in light of our sin. That's what this passage teaches. Other passages teach this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, Jesus, became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says that He Himself, Christ, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He is our substitute. It's because of His death in our place that we have life. By faith, trusting in him and the work that he has done, we are redeemed from sin and death. And Paul mentions here two purposes. Two purposes here in verse 14 as to why Christ gave himself. Why he became our substitute. 
First one, to redeem. And second, to purify. To redeem us. To redeem us from all lawlessness. Redemption has a notion of liberating one from oppression. Rescue. Setting one free. Removing the shackles. In this case, a setting free from lawlessness. He's saying that believers, before we came to Christ, that we are held captive. We are held bondage to lawless behavior. All we can do is sin. All we want to do is sin. Even the good that we do is corrupted by our sin nature. We were enslaved to sin. Weighed by God's law, we are all found wanting. We're condemned without hope. As the hymn says, we are laid bare as guilty, vile, and helpless. But the grace of God in Christ, remember that's our main subject here, the grace of God in Christ has appeared, past tense, has set us free from the power of sin. He stood in the gap as our mediator between God and man. And now, weighed by God's perfect law, we are viewed as perfect because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is perfect. That is credited to our account. Our debt has been paid. We are clothed in his righteousness, and now we live a life not absent from hope, but full of hope. Not only did Christ redeem us, what does Paul say? He also purified us. He did this to purify a people for his own possession. Purification has this idea of cleansing, a washing away, a removal of everything impure and defiling. Perhaps you can even picture you know, all of your filthy dishes after a long you know, party at your house. They're covered in disgusting food, whatever. You know, it's been crusty sitting there. You put them in the dishwasher. You put your Tide Pod in there. Let that thing go to work. Close that thing. You take them out. Brand new. If they're not brand new, you're, you know, you're buying off-brand Tide Pods or something. They're not working, right? That's what God's grace does. It cleanses us to where our slate is clean. We are purified, set apart as holy, and useful to the master of the house, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. Positionally, in Christ, we are viewed as holy, clean, and purified. And Christ does this, why? To create a people who are what? Quote, his own possession. They're not their own, and they are zealous for good works. What does it mean to be zealous? How are we to be zealous for good works? I'm currently reading a book on 9-11, and I was only four when uh, September 11th happened. But I vaguely remember, I knew something was wrong. Sorry, I didn't, yes, I am young. I was just, yes, I was young. But I do remember that uh, my parents, I knew something wrong was happening. And that's pretty much all that I remember. And um, reading through this book, the, the, just understanding the horror of that day uh, and what happened, it produces a lot of different emotions, right? Uh, but one thing that continually rises to the forefront is just like my love for America. I'm just like, what those terrorists did to our country was evil, it was wrong. And I think there is this righteous anger that wells up, I think it is, um, that what they did was evil. And I just respond, you know, just this, how dare you? You know, like, we're going to go get those guys. We're going to make you pay. Sign me up, right? You know, I love my country. I think there is a, we can have an unhealthy patriotism, but I think there is a good patriotism that we also can have. Uh, But I'm just ready to jump in. I'm eager to help and do whatever I can. I'm enthusiastic about this cause for our country. I think, really, that's what it means to be zealous. 
We're excited about this. We're enthusiastic. We're just bubbles over. You have to talk about it. You're eagerly committed to a cause. I'm sure many of you, especially if you're older than me when it happened, you can sympathize with that. But how much more ought we to be zealous for the cause of Christ? How much more should our love for him spring forth to those we talk with? Look at what Christ has done for us. Consider your debt that he paid. Consider the agony that he endured on your behalf. Consider the grace he worked to redeem and to cleanse us, to purify us. How can we not be zealous for what he calls us to do? How can we not be enthusiasts for Christ in our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods? How can we not live out the good works he's called us to by his grace? Notice he also says he does this, what? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. This text reminds us we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He redeemed us. He cleansed us to be his own possession. We have no biblical warrant to be the captain of our own ships, steering that vessel wherever we want. No. We've been set free not to roam on our own. Rather, we've been set free from sin to serve the master who set us free. And his purifying work in us causes us to be zealous for good works as he has prepared us. Not only has God's grace worked in the past to redeem us, to cleanse us, past tense, we see that here. God's grace is, second point here, currently even now training us. God is training us. God is training us. Look back at verse 11. This is one of those verses that was a paradigm shift moment for me, just in my thinking about Christian living. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the same point he makes in verse 14, right? God gave himself for us, past tense. It's a shorthand summary of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and this same grace of God which appeared is, verse 12, training us. Do you see the link there he's making? The grace of God has appeared, and it's presently training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's no change here. It's the gospel. God gave himself in the gospel, and that same gospel message is what is training us. It's not as if, you know, God goes into the metaphorical halftime of a football game and says, all right, I know you're saved by grace, but I'm going to change it up here with sanctification. Now, now in living the Christian life, you need something else. You need an additive. We're going to make some adjustments. No. That same grace of God is training us. His grace saves and sanctifies. Everything we need for the Christian life has been given to us by the gracious work of Christ. How does he do this? Well, he's training us. He's training us. This word is translated a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. It can have a connotation of discipline, punishment, instruction, education, correction, encouragement. And this is because it comes from the same Greek word that we get child from. Those of you who have kids, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Because you do that for children in different contexts. Sometimes you're encouraging them. Sometimes it's instruction. Sometimes it's discipline. Sometimes it's punishment. God's grace in Christ is training us just like a loving parent is training their child. 
he knows or she knows the right remedy to this problem? Do they need encouragement? Do they need instruction? Do they need reproof, training, correction? All these various things. That is what Christ is doing. I mean, just I was just stunned by this point that I think we all need to remember that the grace of God, Jesus Christ himself, is training you. That's amazing. He hasn't left any of us. Our God is a personal God who is present with us and is training us, and he knows exactly what we need to look more like him. The one whom we sinned against came and took on human flesh. He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised for our justification. And if that wasn't enough, he presently is continually training us. He hasn't left us. I was working out yesterday, kind of reflecting on this passage. And um, perhaps it's a cheesy illustration, but I just couldn't help thinking that it's like Christ is our personal trainer. Like it's like he's there with you, and he's like, hey, here's what you need. You need to stop doing that. You're doing this completely wrong. You need to start doing this. You have no idea what you're doing. Here, let me show you how it's done. He's there with us. He's not removed or absent. He's present with us. He personally relates to, abides with us. He aids us, instructs us how to please him. It's amazing. And Paul mainly focuses on two areas here, how Christ does that. We're being trained by Christ to, number one, deny sin, and number two, to live righteously. First, to deny sin. Paul specifies that God's grace trains us to, what does he say? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness, it's pretty simple. It's anything that's not godly, anything that does not conform to who he is as revealed in his word. Worldly passions pertain to sinful desires that we have. Could be sensual or sexual. We certainly understand that, but it's much more than that, right? Anger, pride, jealousy, any type of sinful desire that rises up within us. And Paul is summarizing here with those two words. He's trying to say sin in general, whatever sinful desires, Whatever sinful inclinations any believer might have, the grace of God is training us to deny them, that we no longer have to give in. It's very similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, we're no longer under the dominion and the power of sin, that God's grace has worked in us. He's worked in our hearts such that we are obedient from the heart. And because of that, we don't have to give in. The sinful desires still exist, but the Holy Spirit has empowered us to deny them. And this really leads to Paul's second point here, to live righteously. He's training us not only to negatively deny, sinful, uh, deny sinfulness, sinful desires, worldly passions, but at the same time positively to live righteously. First trait Paul mentions here is what? Self-control. Self-control. This is self-control of the mind. That's the emphasis of this word here. Clear thinking, sober judgment. This has been a favorite word for Paul in Titus. If you look back here, look back at chapter 1, verse 8. Elders, they need to be hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled. You see that there. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Older men, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Verse 5, you see self-controlled again amongst young women. Verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 12, finally here, we see they need to be self-controlled. You see that self-control is to permeate every level of Christ's church. We all must be self-controlled 
in our thinking. And we see that this thinking, this self-control that we must have is something that God himself is training us to do. Self-control goes hand in hand with denying ungodliness, does it not? We can please the Lord in righteousness and deny sinful passions because the Lord has produced in us self-control. Self-control is that ability to say no. No, I don't have to do this. Self-control makes us so that we're not prey to our own pleasures, where we just have to give in. You see, apart from Christ, we are a prey to our own pleasures. We must give in. Isn't it ironic that the world who thinks they're the most free are actually the people who are most enslaved? But now in Christ, we've been liberated from that oppression and we're being trained by God's grace in Christ. This isn't, you know, grit your teeth, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, I've just got to try harder and just get this. No. Christ is training us. If you remember Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit, what does he mention? Self-control. Self-control is something that the Spirit produces in us. He is the one who's doing this. I mean, sometimes you just have to step back and consider how amazing God's grace is. Look at what he's done. He stepped into your place as your substitute. He's died for your sins. He's redeemed you to himself. He has cleansed you and is even now training you to deny and resist sin and to please him. Like, what do we have that we did not receive? As Paul says elsewhere. It's, it's, it's all of his grace. You see that? From beginning to end. Eternity past into eternity future. It's all of his grace. He has done this. He is doing this work in you. And we do all this, look back at verse 12, living godly lives in the present age. Notice what Paul's done. God graciously gave himself for us in the past. He's training us by that same grace to live in the present. And we do all this by looking, what have we not mentioned yet? Past, present, future. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the second appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We fix our eyes on the return. We look back to the past, to his first appearing, and we also look forward to the future, to his second appearing, and that is what gives us strength in the present. So when we talk about living a gospel-centered life, we talk about that quite a bit. Well, what does that mean? I think you can just take someone to a passage just like this. This is what we mean. I think this passage summarizes it really well. You could say this, we should never move on from the gospel because the gospel never moves, moves on from us, right? Past, present, future, it's all there. It's all of his grace. I want to end with a question I had on this passage. Maybe it's a question you're thinking too. You know, how does God's grace train us? Like, I get it. What you're saying is true. I see from this passage, that is what God's grace is doing. But how does that actually happen? And how can I work with the Holy Spirit such that I would be trained to look more like Christ? It's not that we are passive in this, right? God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what do we do? How can I do this? Thomas Manton, who's a pastor years ago, he gave a few ways grace teaches us. I wanted to give just three of those points and kind of work them into application. There's three points here. How does grace teach us? Number one, grace teaches us by way of direction. Grace teaches us by way of direction. 
He alludes to here, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. In those passages, God gives us the promise of the new covenant. There, God promises that he's actually going to work in our hearts. That's the problem that we all have. We have a heart that is corrupted by sin. And as participants of the new covenant that Christ has brought about, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the law of God written on our hearts. That's one of the promises of the new covenant. It's not that we revoke or abolish, we get rid of the commands of God. Let's make that very clear. No, we do not neglect them. Rather, because of the work of Christ in our hearts, having become obedient from the heart, as Paul says in Romans 6, there is a part of us where we now want to obey. Isn't that true? Where we want to please the Lord? I mean, that would be the thought of application I have here. Preach to yourself from this passage that you actually want to obey God's word. Lord, I want to obey. Please help me. Ask through prayer that God would grow that desire to obey even more. I'm sure you're all like me. Our wanting to obey is certainly not perfect, right? No, we still struggle with sin. It's very clear every time we fall into temptation and sin. But I would just say this. Be honest with yourself and be encouraged. Is there not even the smallest part of you that genuinely wants to obey and please God? And I hope the answer is yes. That's of God's grace. He's training you. Thank you, God. Please continue to do that work even more. Take heart. Be encouraged. So he teaches us by way of direction. Number two, grace teaches us by way of argument. Grace teaches us by way of argument. When we meditate on what Christ has done for us, we are compelled to obey. Christ died for me. I've been bought with a price. And will I now insult my Savior by disobeying? How can I spurn my Savior who has done so much for me? Not only should we want to obey that first point, secondly, we must obey. I mean, grace lays a powerful argument by which we are compelled to obey. Jesus even gives this illustration, right? How can we, who have been forgiven 10,000 talents, be like the person who doesn't go forgive the person who owes us only 100 denarii, right? You know, it'd be like, we owe someone $10 million, we're forgiven that, and the person who owes us $100, we won't forgive them. How can we do that? So keep that in mind when you or your spouse, you sin against one another, or you and your fellow church member have something wrong. Keep that in mind. In light of what Christ has done, how can I harbor a cold, callous heart towards them? Be reconciled. We must obey. Finally, third one here. Grace teaches us by way of encouragement. Grace teaches us by way of encouragement. Do we truly believe that God is powerfully at work within us? It's like Mike's point from this morning. Oh, you have little faith. That's oftentimes our problem. We just don't have the faith. We don't believe that God is powerfully at work within us. But he is. And if that's the case... We can obey. Not only should we want to, not only should we must, we can. God has empowered us to obey. We love this verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of those things is obedience. He is the one who has empowered us to obey. Above all else, I just say this, pray to God. Ask him that his grace would be at work in you. Pray that you would desire to obey and please him. Pray that you would deny sin and live righteously. Pray that the cross would ever be on your mind. Pray that you would have confidence 
that God will supply every need by his grace. The grace of God has appeared. And thanks be to God that it presently, even now, is still training us, right? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that the grace of God has appeared not only in the past, you have redeemed us, you have cleansed us, you have purified us to be a people for your own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord, thank you for that. But Lord, thank you that you are presently, even now, training us. You are conforming us to the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that this passage would be an encouragement to all of us. Lord, we do not appear to be what we should be. Oftentimes, we are weak, we fall into sin, we are very much works in progress. But Lord, thank you that we are works in progress. Thank you that you are changing us to look more and more like your Son, and you who began a good work will complete that good work. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that lives a gospel-centered life, that we would be reflective on what you have done in the past and how you're training us. Help us to encourage one another about these truths as we follow Christ together. Yes, this in your name. Amen.